0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Welcome to The Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Cox, editor of Reuters Breaking Views. Well, it's the middle of summer, so today's episode is devoted to a book that, while not super new, might make for some good beach reading. That is if you happen to be a kind of type A, C-suite, striving, professional type. Duff McDonald is the author of The Golden Passport, Harvard Business School, The Limits of Capitalism, and The Moral Failure of the MBA Elite. The title pretty well sums up what makes Duff's book a killer beach read. He effectively eviscerates many of the teachings of the grad school that gave the world leaders like President George W. Bush and Oval Office contender Mitt Romney, not to mention business leaders like Steve Schwartzman and Michael Bloomberg. But HBS also produced Jeff Skilling, the Enron CEO who did Jail Time, and Raj Gupta, the McKinsey boss and Goldman Sachs director who spent 19 months in the slammer. Duff's book explores the seamier side of HBS and some of its less than worthy contributions to capitalism, such as an excessive, even religious devotion to the cult of shareholder value. Some of the crises of capitalism that we arguably find ourselves in today can be linked back to Harvard Business School, its teachings, and in particular, some of its professors, Duff asserts in the book. So give it a listen. So you wrote this book, The Golden Passport, about Harvard Business School, The Limits of Capitalism and the Moral Failure of the MBA Elite. I'm guessing that the people at Harvard, the good people in Cambridge, were not super psyched enough to to read this book.
0: Uh, They have not appeared super psyched, although the only interview that uh, Nitin Noria, the dean, has given where it was mentioned was to the Harvard Crimson, the undergraduate newspaper, and he criticized the book for what he thought it did and didn't contain, before admitting that he hadn't read it. <laughs> so um, I am. Uh, that's the. That's the most I've heard from the dean's so office. So he was briefed
1: well by somebody on, on the book.
0: I would guess, and I have heard from a couple of professors on their own, half a dozen at this point, who. While everyone wishes the book had used a little less of the colorful language that it does, there is a small minority, at least on the faculty, that has, has said that they thought I did a good job. Well,
1: I mean, let me just sort of br- briefly read sort of what I think is the thesis, which is that H- HBS has failed to fulfill its original purpose. To teach business community ethics to provide as a heightened sense of responsibility among businessmen who will handle their current business problems in socially constructive ways. Is that a sort of a
0: fair? Th- absolutely. Summation? I think you know it has failed to produce those kinds of graduates in number. Uh, I, I never had the opinion that they have produced a, a corrupted alumni no. group, but these are people who do very well but it's not very often the doing of good and i think the other thing they failed at at least on the faculty side is you know staying focused on what a graduate school of business education might have done in terms of research and questions and trying to keep capitalism honest rather than becoming a cheerleader
1: right well what I mean you you blame them in the book for a, a number of ills can I can I count them here so or recount them so um, you suggest that they provided the ideological underpinnings for the junk bond induced takeover mania and resulting scandals of the 1980s and beyond um, shareholder activism which you know good bad whatever there's there's you can have different views about that but um, the increase in the pay gap between chief executives and employees, the extraordinary and, let's just say, uh, untrammeled use of share options as executive compensation. Um, I think you say the Vietnam War was, uh, was no. one. No, no, no. no, no.
0: <laughs> okay. But, oh, no, no. That, that was Robert McNamara's right. uh, behavior in the war.
1: Right, right. Okay. So not the war, just yeah. his, his handling of yeah. it as a HBS. Um, the real estate mortgage bubble and ensuing financial crisis.
0: That one is I don't blame on them, but I do question their claim to be necessary to the solution.
1: Right. Well, you had a few uh, players in the in the, in the the uh, crisis, including HBS graduates, George W. Bush, Hank Paulson, who was the Treasury Secretary, Chris Cox, who was the SEC uh, chairman at the time. So there's was a sort of a, a Stan, trio. Stan of O'Neill, John Stan Fain. O'Neill.
0: Right, right. OK. Uh, Jamie Dimon's another, although... Um, uh, I'm not that critical of him. We know right.
1: that. Yeah. Well, he's, he, didn't, he didn't require a, a, a bankruptcy uh, or, a, sorry, a bailout. Um, and then you also suggest that shareholder capitalism led to the unprecedented political dysfunction that has
0: given us uh, Donald Trump in our current political environment. Mm-hmm. I think Although he's a Wharton grad, is he not? Trump is a Wharton grad. If there's a pivot point in the book, it is uh, in the 80s, as you point out, the hiring of Michael Jensen who was one of the most prominent pushers of the idea of agency theory. Mm-hmm. He's sort of a Milton Friedman disciple. And, uh, and this, is,
1: this is the idea that basically the management exists only to maximize shareholder value. Exactly. As an agent of the shareholders rather than as a steward of all stakeholders. Yeah.
0: And, and my point that I make in, in the book or one of them is that this was a school that had taught managerial responsibility for 75 years and then they hired someone who helped spread and solidify the suggestion that managers are all whores Mm -hmm. and basically all we need to do is use a carrot and a stick. Mm -hmm. And for much of the 80s he was the most prominent and powerful figure on the HBS faculty and one of the things that they've said in response to an excerpt that ran in Newsweek about him was that Duff McDonald's focused on the past, we've moved on and my response to that was it's a history so we're talking about the past mm-hmm. and even if hbs has moved on the culture hasn't and we are still stuck in a shareholder focused short-term results driven economy and the the negative effects of that ideology sweeping the country and pretty much the world can be pointed fairly clearly at the hiring of Michael Jensen and giving him the legitimacy of Harvard Business School,
1: and 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 obviously the the rest of the the, the body of the university was complicit in this. And I imagine um, there was certain amount of back scrubbing that's happened here. I mean, if you create these incredibly wealthy agents of shareholder value, I'm guessing that they donate large amounts of money to the uh, endowment of the school. Yeah,
0: I actually spoke to a guy named Bill Lazonic, who's a well-known business professor who had sort of intermittent connections to HBS. And he told me that uh, the dean at the time, John MacArthur, who hired Jensen, basically said, we're doing this for Mm -hmm. the money. (laughs) And, you know, one of the points I make in the book about how they lost their focus is that HBS has effectively created this wonderfully lucrative and self-reinforcing feedback loop between their alumni, the companies they work for, the donations both personal and corporate to the school, the positive and glowing case studies about those people that come out of there, and research that tends... uh, Less to break ground than to ratify the current management uh, ethos thing of the day. Right. And um, if if you looked at it and and as as uh, set that apart from Harvard University, you could say, "Wow, this is a really efficient and well-oiled machine." But it's supposed to be a graduate school at Harvard. Hmm. And The Economist actually a couple weeks ago in a short review of the book suggested that one of their options should be just to spin HBS off and capitalize the thing and call it what it is, which is a business. Right. And that would be okay if they called themselves a business, but they spend so much time, you know, preaching their principled and idealistic bona fides that it's it's hypocritical.
1: But they could obviously be, you know, they could be a a for-profit sort of, uh, you know, leadership, education, company, couldn't they? I mean, that's, that's what they, that's what they are. They're right. just
0: part of a nonprofit.
1: Right. Which which gives them certain tax advantages. I yeah. assume. Your criticism is seems to have resonated with lots of people. And yet still HBS has gets something like 10,000 MBA applicants a year, like 10, 12 percent of them are accepted. And then the extraordinary number is that you 90 know, percent of those accepted attend, mm-hmm. which is uh, that's a pretty good hit rate for any university um it's ranked still number 1 by US News and World Report there doesn't seem to be slowing down <laughs> yeah so
0: so here's the point i make about that if you look at hbs from the outside you could conclude that they don't have many dissatisfied customers customer being the prospective student who, who has an hbs mba that mm-hmm. catalyzes their career and earnings power the faculty hugely compensated, maybe the best compensated faculty on the planet for all we know, the companies that engage with them in, in research, all of those people are happy. The point I make is that there's one constituency, and you know we can get back to stakeholder ideas here, and that is the companies that they work for, what happens to them, and society itself. And all MBA schools like to tout how many of their current or former graduates or CEOs or, you know, have achieved whatever kind of prominence. Uh, a McGill professor, Henry Mintzberg, did a study where he said that's that's a great selling point to the student. How about for the rest of us? Maybe the interesting thing is what happens after they become CEO. Mm. What happens to those companies? And he decided to do a study. So it'd be hard to do a complete one of those, right, with time and longitude and everything. So he just said, why don't we start with a pool of uh, CEOs that they came up with? So there was a book called Inside the Harvard Business School where at the beginning of it, it had a list of all their uh, currently awesome graduates. And he said, and just to make the time period fair too, let's just measure from the date of publication to now. And uh, I think it was 19 or 20 sitting CEOs over half of them were outright failures, a quarter of them were questionable performance, and a quarter of them were okay performance. Right. So, you know, everyone involved with the Harvard Business School seems to profit from it, find it a profitable relationship, but it has never been shown that they have better managerial expertise and the one single study that's been done on in the last 15 years showed that their performance is indeed poor.
1: Right. But you, so you've <clears> chosen HBS, the number one in the in the <clears> field. I mean, how does I mean, isn't is it possible that all the the great business schools have the same flaws? I mean, whether it's sure, sure. Chicago, Yale I, or I, Dartmouth. I um
0: The reason I picked uh, Harvard was, you know, fairly straightforward. One is. Among the oldest and largest, obviously, mm-hmm. and the most prominent, even though you know it waxes and wanes, and you got Stanford now or whoever. Yeah. But and also, you know, we're to try and tell the history of the NBA through the prism of one central character. HBS was just obvious. Someone said, "Why didn't you write about Stanford?" And I said, "Because they're not Harvard." Right. I imagine Stanford has multiple
1: conflicts with its role in Silicon
0: Valley. <sighs> Absolutely, and so, but you're right. The The MBA style of analytical thinking and decision-making that permeates business schools, I don't think we need to throw it out, but I think we need to understand its limitations. And the specific point at HBS that I talk about is their loyalty to the case method.
1: Yeah, you talk quite a bit about that. One of the the surprising factoids that came out of this is the, the idea that HBS actually gives companies a veto over case studies written about them, is that true?
0: Yeah, they they talk about their professors doing fact-based objective research of the companies they write cases about. That's a crock from the start. They write about the things they are given access to by Mm -hmm. the companies. A lot of the professors end up consulting for those companies. Let's take, for example, Enron. Rash (laughs) of positive case studies. Up to the very date of implosion, an HBS professor was on an advisory board of Enron at the time of its collapse. Mm -hmm. He had written case studies. They claim that they need to let their professors do this to, to get them close to the action. And he obviously didn't see it coming. And, you know, one of those cases about Enron, I stumbled on, had the exact same name as the title of a speech given by Jeff Skilling. So... If you if you the wondering CEO, about the CEO went to jail, the CEO went to jail. So if you're wondering about the source material for their case studies, it's what they are provided, right. and then they run them back by the companies and give them veto power. So the cases have a positive bias, an overwhelming positive bias, uh, except in the case of you know post crash Enron became a case of what not to do, yeah, the poster child rather than a case study. Yeah, but. That You know, there's a, a number of, you know, the merits of the case method are because it's classroom discussion based. It teaches students to think on their feet.
1: Yeah, you say this, and think on their feet to argue with conviction, even if they don't entirely know what they're talking about.
0: Right, which is why uh, McKinsey always hires, has always hired HBS MBA. That's another book. Right? It, yeah, that's another <laughs> book. But management consulting right. is about doing that. So it gives them confidence and conviction. But cases are backward looking. Of course. Right? You are, of course, we need to learn from the past, but if all your problem solving education is comprised of the things that worked in the past, you are not going to be setting yourself up to be the most flexible decision maker for things that come down the pike in the future. The list goes on. You know, they all have a a central sort of heroic CEO. So the cult of the CEO in which we think a company is one person and that they deserve
1: rather than a collaborative body
0: yeah especially large companies with tens of thousands of people and we somehow have concluded so uh, the myth of the
1: CEO is is one of the is sort of one of the things they preach
0: yeah and the case method reinforces it where they think that you know the opening question is you know here's a company in this situation with this kind of competitive threats blah 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 what do you do you're the CEO. What do you do? Mm -hmm. And uh, students come out of there with the misunderstanding that they know how to manage because they've talked about examples of uh, management that's happened in the past.
1: Right. So you uh, you you admit that uh, in the book right at the outset that HBS did not wasn't helpful. They didn't collaborate with you on this. Um, How do you how do you deal with any argument that oh well then how could it possibly be fair? What do you say to critics, HBS graduates of which there are 70,000 alive in the world or something?
0: You know, this is my third book. The first was a biography of Jamie Dimon that I wrote during the financial crisis. The man was busy. He did not need to be making himself available, but he did. The second was about McKinsey, a history of McKinsey, one of the most secretive firms in professional services, if not in all of business and it took them a while to come around but they cooperated when I went to HBS uh, they were still stinging from a big expose in the New York Times about gender Mm -hmm. at the school their PR uh, guy said you know we feel that she misled us and my response to that was I'm not sure what that has to do with me Uh, why don't you call Jamie Dimon or Dominic Barton of McKinsey Mm -hmm. and ask them if they felt misled and they sort of strung me along for another couple months and finally said, we're not going to make anyone in the dean's office or the administration available to you.
1: So they, a real bunker mentality.
0: A real bunker mentality. What does that tell us? It tells us that they are not interested in outside opinion of what they do. Well, so it makes you wonder whether they're actually sort of
1: self-critical in the same way that they would expect their students to be analytical and critical of, in a case study, even if the, of course- I think the faculty, from
0: my reading of history, the faculty is a, you know, engaged faculty by and large that tries to keep the curriculum updated and relevant and of interest to students and that they they are constantly self-questioning. I think the fundamental problem with HBS, and maybe it's something that has to do with all of higher education, is that the administration- has lost sight of the compass here they have turned into a money grab uh, one of the reasons they told me the Dean wasn't available was that he was out fundraising and you know when you're when you're <laughs> the main part of your job is shaking down alumni for money and you can't talk to someone who I I did not have an agenda right. um, um, but I would say both my previous books are quite fair and what happened is Over time, doing the research, I started to get uh, more and more concerned and critical about the way that the school had handled its responsibilities as part of Harvard and also as a molder of the minds of youth. And it ended up uh, more critical than even I'd expected. But it it, and if it's not fair and it doesn't have their voice in it, that's their fault. Right. I asked them several times, several times.
1: Well, the, the dean, um, we've, um, I, one of my colleagues in India wrote about this uh, conflict of interest the dean potentially has as a member of the board of Tata and Sons. Have you looked into this thing?
0: I have. And while one wouldn't want to make any specific allegations, it certainly smells bad. It looks like there is outside influence on the board. There's certainly a kind of nepotism or nepotism once removed The dean's brother-in-law was brought Mm -hmm. onto the board. uh, And the dean, his name is... Nitin Noria. Isn't he written quite a bit about ethics? That's supposedly his specialty, corporate governance and ethics. And the main essence of the dispute at Tata was that the chairman of Tata Sons, Cyrus Mistry, whose family owns a huge chunk of that company, came at loggerheads with Ratan Tata, who's not on the board of Mm Tata Sons. He's the chairman of the Tata Trusts. And which sits above. The which sits sons, above. Yeah. They're the majority shareholder. And uh, Ratan Tata also happens to have donated $50 million to HBS for a building in his name. And the suggestion that the dean was not facing an almost impossible conflict... Is just hard to swallow. Right. 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 And, uh, you know, my my point about that one would not be to to accuse him of anything in particular, but to say, why are you on the board of anything? Uh, Aren't you busy enough? And um, uh, especially why are you on the board of companies? Uh, as uh, appointed representative someone who's a massive donor, donor to, to your institution. How can yeah. you possibly claim that you're acting with objectivity?
1: Yeah, he's still on the board, too.
0: Yeah.
1: It's, it seems to, it's a real conflict for, the, for HBS. So um, overall, what has been um, the response, the
0: non-HBS response to your work? Um, well, before I get into that, I mm. should say one thing. I think that the school churns out people with serious analytical strengths, and are very suitable for certain kinds of jobs. Mm-hmm. There are people, there's a reason Wall Street likes MBAs, because Wall Street's an analysis thing, and you're supposed to gather data, look at it, and and figure out what you're looking at. Well,
1: you mentioned someone like Jamie Dimon, who you obviously know well. I mean, Jamie was, you know, is clearly one of the better bank CEOs. Yeah, uh, and he can look at
0: the pile of numbers, and, you know, he's one of those guys that they say he suddenly understands the one thing that matters. Mm. Um, so you know, the there's a desire on the part of people associated with the school to say that I blame them for everything and and uh, condemn them all. I don't. I don't actually have that much of an opinion on the, on the ethics or morals of their graduates. There's too many. There's mm, no way to generalize. Course. I think that the school itself has failed uh, in its mission. The response outside the school has been, I'm hoping it's my best book yet, but the reviews have been the best yet. Mm-hmm. And I think it has a lot to do with the time we're living in where whatever number of reasons you want to try and come up with for the election of Donald Trump, one of them was the dissatisfaction on the part of the many of the actions of the few. Mm -hmm. And the few are those who have been in charge of this country. The elites, as he would call it. And the MBAs, Harvard MBAs, uh, you know, are have been running, you know, at the point about the financial crisis, they were running pretty much every major organization that had anything to do with it. And you went to Wharton? I went to Wharton Undergrad. Okay. one of the I've had some people suggest <laughs> that I'm a, jealous that I didn't get in. Um, and for the record, um, I do have a regret about going to Wharton undergrad, and it's because I spent four years studying the same stuff, and I didn't get an MBA. Uh, but for anyone who's wondering, there was no way I was going to go get an MBA after that. Right. Uh, so, no, I never applied to Harvard Business School.
1: Yeah, and what's your—you what's your, have a new, next target in mind for your next book? I think
0: I'm going to— uh, The Vatican, perhaps? Or? Uh, someone else. Someone <laughs> suggested the college board. That seems <laughs> a little too inside for me. Oh I think God. I need to sort of widen the focus out a little bit to something other than specific institutions. It takes a lot to— I you should know, take something light, like the NHL or something? Yeah, something. Uh, th- like I, I'm going to do <laughs> something, and, and maybe with some people who will actually speak to me for the next one. I, yeah, I imagine that will be a more comfortable endeavor. One uh, one Harvard professor asked me for an early copy of the book and, and because he was talking to a group of students, and I sent it up to them, even though we were trying to keep it out of the hands of the school before publication. And he told me that it was a fruitful discussion with the class and that one of the questions to him was, what do we need to do to make sure that we're not in Duff's next book? So <laughs> um, we'll see if I can uh, uh, find some nice things to say about people next time.
1: All right. Well, thanks, Duff. Great, great having you come by. Good thanks love having the book. me. book. Yeah. OK. Next time you see a resume with an HBS degree, just think twice. You may not just be getting the creme de la creme. Anyway, that's it for now. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Exchange podcast. I'd like to thank our producers, Bethel Hobte, Kate Duguid, and Andrew D'Antonio, and all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings, for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and at Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob1Cox. Thanks for tuning in and adios.